May God bless the reading and teaching of his holy, inerrant, and inspired word. You all can have a seat if you're still standing. Last week, we started a sermon series through the book of Colossians. We spent some time talking about Paul, the author, and why it's important that we consider who is writing those words that we just heard. We were reminded that Paul was once a religious terrorist who persecuted Christians. We learned that Paul was a really bad person, an enemy of the church. But by God's grace, God saved him and enlisted Paul into his service. Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter to a church in Colossae, a group of people that he had never met before. But he had heard that they were bearing the marks of genuine Christians. He pointed out particularly their faith and love and hope. He saw and heard about their changed lives, and so he was thankful to God, who's the only one who can bring true and lasting change. The book of Colossians is about life change. It speaks to our ability to change because of the power of God. Colossians reminds us that you don't have to walk according to the ways you used to walk, but that God can actually help you to change in this life. In that way, Colossians is a deeply practical book as it reminds us of truths that are still true for anyone who trusts in Jesus today, for anyone who wishes that they could change today. Yet, Colossians isn't merely about life change only for the sake of life change. As we saw last week, it's rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that good news that Jesus has loved and forgiven and saved sinners. See, when we talk about Jesus saving you, we're not just talking about eternity in the future. We're talking about the new life that Jesus gives to his people right now how he can heal and save right now. The Bible tells us that Jesus saves our souls. He forgives our sins. He seals us with the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to change according to God's will for our lives. We said it last week. The book of Colossians is a deeply logical book. Paul chooses his words and his sentences very carefully because he's articulating a logical flow of the reality, the big truths about the gospel, and how those play out in our lives during the week. As we turn to our next section that we just read, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, what you'll find is that Paul is continuing to pray for the people. If you're just reading through the book, and if you're really paying attention, it's sometimes hard to distinguish when Paul is praying and when Paul is teaching. He'll sort of go back and forth. He'll flip between the two. That's sort of just true for the entire book. And I think there's something very subtle going on there, just that we can learn before we even dig into the material itself. Whenever you think about praying in your life today, praying to God, often we put prayer in the category of our emotions. Right? We're taking our troubles to God. We're praying according to how we feel. And then in a separate category is the things that the Bible teaches, truth and doctrine, theology. But what Paul is showing us here is that those categories often overlap with one another. That's what he's doing when he's writing this letter. As Paul is praying for these Colossian Christians, 
He's praying according to his belief, according to his trust, according to what he believes about God. He prays knowing God while desiring to listen and pray to God. You'll also notice that those five verses make up two two sentences in English. In the original Greek, that whole passage we're looking at today is just one long run-on sentence. That doesn't necessarily mean anything other than it gives you a little bit of insight into how Paul's brain works. As he's writing, he just kind of keeps thinking of things and tagging them onto this one long sentence. Again, that doesn't mean much as we're trying to figure out what the Bible means other than Paul is really known for testing the tensile strength of English grammar. Uh, How well can these commas and periods hold up as he writes this very long sentence? Let's jump in. Let me read verse 9 to you again. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you're taking notes, that first heading is a continual prayer. A continual prayer. Again, if you're familiar with Paul's writing in the New Testament, what you'll notice is that he's always praying for people and telling people about it. He says, we have not stopped praying for you. As I've just been thinking about that simple statement this week, it strikes me as so different just on a surface level of how we pray today, isn't it? Paul is continually praying over and over again for these people. Our prayer lives are so poor as Christians today that when you tell someone you'll pray for them, often they're lucky if they get one prayer, right? If you remember at all, typically in the church we're pretty bad, right, about saying I'll pray for you and then we just never do. Paul's really, he, what he's saying here is he's constantly praying for them. He prays without ceasing. And when the Bible says praying, he, that he prays without ceasing, that doesn't literally mean he's praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It also probably doesn't mean that he prays like 100 times a day for them. I don't think it means that. What it means is that he's praying for them regularly. Regularly is the helpful word. Paul is often praying, and as he's praying, this church, these Christians at Colossae, often come into his mind as he is praying, and so he prays for them. What we get here is it's a picture of what it means for a follower of Jesus to not just have a healthy, active prayer life, but to be regularly praying for other people. In Paul's case here, it's people he's never met. It's to be reminded, and this is a a sign of maturity, to pray for other people, not just to be solely focused on my own immediate prayer needs. There's just a quick practical aside there, that if you ever find yourself running out of things to pray for, it's kind of like I want to pray, but I don't know what to pray for, it could be that you're a little too self-centered. Because if you open your eyes and look, If you look around to the people you know, to the situations going on in our culture and around the world, what you'll find is there's an endless well of things that you could be praying for. It's kind of like when kids say, I'm bored. And we say, how could you be bored? There's a million things to do. It's kind of like that. Like like the adult is, it's the immaturity of the kid. It's kind of like when we say, I don't know what to pray for. Just lift your eyes up. Look around. Pray for those things going on outside of yourself. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what he often does. What does he pray? He says, asking that you would be filled 
with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's interesting. Paul is praying that they would increase in their knowledge about Jesus, about his will, and ultimately that that would lead to growth in Christ. It's a broken record around here, but change starts at the head level. So what Paul is doing is he's praying for growth in Christ that starts right there with increasing our knowledge of Jesus and his will for our lives. If you wonder, how do I change? How do, you, how do I grow as a person? Well, this is it. It's not by self-denial. It's not by being more disciplined just for the sake of being more disciplined. It's not that one day you wake up and you simply desire to be a better person and you really, really mean it this time. Change happens whenever you desire more and more to know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus desires from you today. See, in that sense, life change naturally flows downstream from changing our minds about Jesus. What Paul's praying here is he's praying for progressive sanctification, isn't he? Sanctification is growing to be more like Christ, to be more holy in our lives. We believe that that is a progressive act that takes place over the course of our lives. More and more increasing in our knowledge of Jesus that then flows downstream. That's what Paul is praying for here. He prays that we would increase in our knowledge of God. Now that right there is pretty easy to understand. God has revealed his truth about himself in the Bible. So as you learn more and more about what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches, you grow in your knowledge of God. But he also prays that we would grow in our knowledge of God's will. That's a little bit trickier. That's probably one of the more common questions that you have in your daily life today, isn't it? What does God want me to do? What is God's will for my life? Let me say a couple things on that. The book of Hebrews starts like this. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So that is, before Jesus, the only way to hear from God was that God would speak to his people through a prophet, his mouthpiece. But in these last days, that's the days we're living in right now, that Jesus brought about, he has spoken to us by his Son. That is, God has spoken to us through the person and words of Jesus. What that means for you today is that you don't need an intermediary to speak to God or to listen to God on your behalf. You can go directly to the source because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We prayed it earlier that Jesus is our high priest, and he's given his people the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us to lead, to guide, to nudge, to encourage, to convict. See, if you're a Christian today, then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And so the way to know God's will, it's kind of a Sunday school answer, but it's just the classic, I call it the triad of Christian growth. Number one, it's you study the Bible, God's Word. Number two, you develop a deep, prayer life, talking and listening to God. 
And number three, you live in community with other Christians who are doing those same things, who can give you godly counsel and wisdom for your situation. So, Bible, prayer, community. It's a Sunday school answer, but it's true for a reason. Because of the way progressive sanctification works, the longer you do those three things, the longer you live as a Christian, the better you'll get not only at doing those things, but also the better you'll get at understanding God's wisdom for your life, the better you'll get at discerning what God would have you to do. In fact, that's just what Paul's praying, that they would increase in their knowledge of God, that they would grow as Christians so that they can live as Christians. What we can say today is that God has spoken truly and clearly through his word. It's not a popular thing to say to like your unbelieving friends, but so often people will say, what will they say? I just wish God would speak to me. I just wish I could hear from God. Meanwhile, they've got a Bible collecting dust on the bookshelf. God has spoken to us. The Bible is God's word, and it is for you today. In addition to that, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you if you are a follower of Jesus. That's God's Spirit leading you, guiding you. The Holy Spirit is active and alive today in the life of a believer. And the Holy Spirit is God. So we've got Bible study, we've got prayer, we've got community, we've got the Holy Spirit. Even then, sometimes the picture is cloudy in your life, isn't it? Often, I did it a couple times this week, if you are asking me for advice on what you should do in a certain situation, the first thing I'm going to say is, what does the Bible say about it? Because if the Bible is clear on the topic, then we're going to go with what the Bible says. Usually you've already checked there, and we're talking about some sort of gray area right, where it's unclear what you should do. Often what my advice is back to you, and it's frustrating to you, the listener, is I'll say, what do you, a person filled with the Holy Spirit, who's growing in Christ, what do you think you should do? And what I'm really asking there is, how is the Holy Spirit leading you, nudging you in this gray area, in this area that's unclear scripturally? And often what we'll do is we'll go with your instinct and your discernment based on how you believe God is leading you. What's the frustrating part of that advice? Well, sometimes we don't know whether we're leading, we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit or if we're just listening to the own, our own voices in our head, right? That's just a frustration of being a human, right? Welcome to life. You make, every day, we all make a ton of choices based off of limited information. You make the best choice you can, and then we live with it, we grow from it. How do we get there? Bible study, prayer. This is kind of where the other people thing comes in. That you need to be in relationship with other people who also know Jesus, who also have the Holy Spirit and are trying to follow Jesus in their life. So that it's not just you trying to make a decision based off limited information, but you listen to the voices of other people that you know and trust to weigh in as well. And then the more godly people we have in on a decision, the more likely we are to do the right thing. And again, that ties into what Paul is praying here. The longer we do that, the longer we do that together, the better we're going to get at understanding God's will for our lives, what God would have us to do in various situations. That's all Paul is praying for to start this passage. Let me keep reading. 
He gives four examples of how we can actually live a life that's worthy of God's call upon us. This heading is a worthy walk. Colossians 1 verse 10, he writes, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Really all he's doing there is he's continuing to pray that God would change their minds and that their lives would change as a result. That they would change in such a way that people would see it. That people would see their changed lives and would give glory to God based on their lives that are worthy of the Lord. He gives full, four practical ways there that we can live to please God. This isn't an exhaustive list. This is just a representative list that Paul gives to us. The first, he, the first thing he says is that we would be bearing fruit. Common biblical metaphor, a good, a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit, or no fruit. That's a big theme in Colossians. That you used to live a certain way, that produced a certain kind of fruit, you got a certain result based on your actions. Once Jesus saves you and changes you, you now live according to a new way, and you produce new fruit, good fruit. Uh, very practically, that's why we pray every week. We just go down the list praying for the gifts of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that God would continue to grow them and produce them in us as individuals. You might, remind, you might remember from last week, Paul has Genesis chapter 1 in his head whenever he's writing to the Colossians. In Genesis 1.28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. This is kind of another allusion to that. Not just more people, but producing good fruit. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ, we are meant to be alive, bearing good fruit, doing good works as a response to God's grace in our lives. The second example of a worthy walk is to be growing in the knowledge of God. That's connected both logically and grammatically to bearing fruit. That's what we've been saying all along this morning. How do we bear good fruit? By increasing in our knowledge of God. I wish God would just tell me what to do. I wish God would just tell me how to follow him. What we're saying is he has and he does. The Bible doesn't speak exhaustively to every situation that you'll face in your life, but it gives us principles for how we ought to live, what we ought to care about, the things we should value. goes back to that triad of growth. What we can say is that Bible study and knowledge of God's word isn't everything. You certainly know people who knew the Bible very well, better than you, who didn't necessarily produce all that good of fruit in their lives. It's all three things together. But the more you do understand God's word, the word that he's spoken, the more discerning you'll become in your daily life. Third, Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power. As Christians, we are to live empowered lives. That's a power that does not exist within ourselves. Jesus gives it to his people through the Holy Spirit. Think about it like this. It's a daunting list when you look at the New Testament, at all the things that Jesus calls you to do, all the things that Jesus tells you to care about, all the ways in which he tells you to change. That's a long list. And in fact, because of the grace of God, we don't have to do anything to earn God's love. But once he saves us, he starts to change us so that we live in response to his love. 
He calls us to live certain kinds of ways, to treat people in a new way, to love the unlovely, to be kind, to be compassionate people. Those things are hard. But he who called you is faithful. Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that verse, it's a cliche, right? That verse isn't about God helping you to do whatever you are trying to do on your own in your life, right? That verse is about Jesus giving you the strength to do all of the things that he has called you to do. Because Jesus is going to call you to do hard things, to have hard, honest conversations, to forgive, to ask for forgiveness, to lead well, to lead righteously, to parent as a godly parent, to be a good friend, to share the gospel with your coworker, even though it's going to be awkward and they're going to think you're weird. We find strength to face the challenges of this life in Christ alone. Again, think about the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote about how hard he worked for the sake of the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 9. He wrote, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And here it is. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see what he's saying there? It's a very nuanced perspective. Paul is out here pounding the pavement, working hard for the sake of the kingdom, yet it wasn't because of Paul's power and effort. It was God's grace that was empowering him in a supernatural way. You can ask the question today of your own life. How are you going to live a life of love and good works How are you going to do all of the things that God has called you to do? And the answer is, on your own, you are not. You cannot. But the more and more, as you seek to follow Jesus, he will hold you up and he'll empower you to do what he's asked you to do. And when you do that, you bring honor and glory to Jesus, your king. The fourth example Paul gives is giving joyful thanks to God. It's easy to be thankful when things are going well and God is giving you what you want anyway. The question for a Christian is, can you be thankful when God is not giving what giving you what you want? And instead, he's giving you what you need. We all know, you know, we can talk about change. Change is often painful. Sometimes we don't like to change or want to change. What we can trust is that if you're a Christian, then you now have God as a good father who gives good gifts to his children. What we can trust is that God authors your life in such a way that brings him ultimate glory and you ultimate good. That doesn't always make sense when we look around and when we look forward, does it? When we look at the hard things in our life, things that come from God's hand, we might say, how is God good in this? But often we can look backwards the way God has worked through our lives and we can see that he's much wiser than we are, that he is leading things to good, and we can be thankful joyfully for how God works in our lives. Who do we give thanks to? Well, Paul here gives thanks to God the Father, 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, what qualifies you to share in that inheritance? That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you've earned it. It's not because you now work to keep it. Salvation is a free gift of God by his grace and mercy to lost sinners. He saves them and he brings them into the fold of God forever. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's what we sang about earlier. By his shed blood, he has paid the ransom for our souls that was owed because of our sin and guilt. But once you trust in Jesus by faith, he not only forgives you of your sin, but he now qualifies you so that you, you, can you believe it? You are now deserving forever to share in that infinite, eternal inheritance of abundant life. Because of Jesus, you get salvation through union with Christ. And let me just point it, point out here, we haven't checked in on this for a few weeks, but just so you know, anytime Paul says the word you in a New Testament letter, it's almost always the plural you. And that makes sense, right? He's writing a letter to churches, to groups of people. But that's what's happening here. When Paul's talking about you, it's the plural you. And so what Paul is saying here is that God the Father has qualified all y'all to share in the inheritance of the saints. That's sort of that together community element that Jesus saves us. Let's finish the passage in verse 13 and 14. We get sort of the foundation of how any of this stuff is possible. It's a picture of a kingdom transfer. Kingdom transfer. Let me read those verses, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'll just be honest with you. Anytime I think of the book of Colossians, I think of these two verses. Those two verses aren't the main idea of the book. It's not really even the most important message of the book. That comes next week when we talk about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. But that imagery of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun is just so striking to me. Striking because it's so true of what has happened to us because of the cross of Christ. You were here, now you're here. Consider, again, there's a ton of parallels here with what we just read. And consider the comparison from this idea of kingdom transfer to what God says to Moses to say to the people when they were enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt. This is Exodus chapter 6. God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. See, God is in the business of rescuing and redeeming a people for himself. He takes them out of a situation of bondage and darkness and slavery, and he brings them into a promised land, giving them an inheritance of riches, eternal life. So Paul is sort of drawing on that imagery to show us that on the cross of Christ, 
Jesus accomplished something. And what he accomplished was a complete and final victory over his enemies. And by his shed blood on the cross, he's brought a countless multitude out of darkness and into a new kingdom forever. We read Psalm 107 earlier. The psalmist celebrates that victory of God. Let me just read you a couple of those verses again. Psalm 107, 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. I wonder if you know that in your life today. Whenever we read words like this, being transferred from darkness to light. Have those words just become so churchy to us that they were sort of glazed over to them? Or can you remember what it was like to be in that bondage? If anybody knew what it meant to be transferred out of a life of darkness into a life of light in the sun, it's the author himself, Paul. We talked about his conversion last week how he was a religious terrorist, he was an enemy and a persecutor of the people of God when God rescued him and changed him forever. Let me read you again Paul's own words himself about his conversion moment. This is on the back of your handout. This comes from Acts 26, starting in verse 12. This is actually Paul's legal defense before King Agrippa. Here's what he says. He says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the, on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Look at verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you see that? That at the preaching of the gospel, eyes would be opened and people would move from darkness to light, that they would receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. That's the good news that we celebrate in here. The gospel is all about that kingdom transfer, that you used to be one way. You used to belong to that kingdom, but now because of Jesus, you belong to this kingdom. You are being sanctified. That is changed by Jesus. You've been forgiven of your sins because you're now a citizen of God's kingdom now and forever. And it's not just you, all y'all, it's you and all people across time and space who have experienced that same good news. That's what we celebrate as Christians. So often uh, you've been in, perhaps you've been in churches where it seemed like what people were celebrating was how good of a person they are now. 
And that's hard for those of us who are longer, farther back on the path, who don't have it all together, who are broken, who are messed up, who have struggles. It's sort of like, wow, how could I, 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 I can't celebrate what you're celebrating. What we're saying is not that we are such good people, but that we weren't. But by the grace of God, Jesus has brought us into the family anyway because of his love and mercy. We'll close our time together this morning by singing uh, one of our usual songs, Hallelujah for the Cross. The lyric in the chorus is a really simple line. But what we'll sing is that line, I was a prisoner, but now I'm not. I'll just say as an aside, I always sort of laugh to myself at that line because I think it's not like a really like super poetic line to me. It's kind of simple, but the meaning is so deep. It's such a simple line that we sing. I was a prisoner, but now I'm not. See, that's a simple line, but the gospel message is a simple message, isn't it? All of salvation history is about God saving prisoners out of the darkness for himself. This is the plan of God. This is the mission that Jesus accomplished. Pastor Michael Lawrence said it like this. This is on your notes. He says, from the garden to Abraham and his descendants, to Israel, to the church, to the new Jerusalem, God has always worked to save a people for his son. Redemption, being bought back from the darkness. Redemption is deliverance. It's liberation. It's what we all need before we know Jesus. What do people lost in the darkness need? They need to be brought out. They need to be rescued and delivered. They need to be liberated from the forces and the addictions that enslave them. Jesus breaks those chains by the power of his blood. He delivers his people. He forgives their sins. He transfers them into his kingdom forever. And here's the thing. Here's what the unbelieving people who don't know Jesus, here's what they don't get. That doesn't happen naturally or automatically. You can't just will yourself to be saved. We don't stumble upon deliverance through self-enlightenment. I'll just tell you, I was talking to a friend recently. He's not a Christian. He's sort of anti-church. He was talking about how hopeless his life is, about how out of sorts his life is, how purposeless life is. Why can't he find peace in his life? Why is he saying those things? He's in darkness. He can't see. He can't see the way out because he's blinded by sin and slavery. What does he need? He needs to be rescued. He needs someone, a savior, to come and get him. How is that going to happen? Well, that happens whenever I share the good news of Jesus with him, when I preach the gospel to him, the same gospel that I'm believing and trusting in today. And by God's grace, upon hearing that message, he might trust in Jesus by faith and be saved. Jesus is the only one who can do that. But Jesus has promised to do that. And he's been faithful to his promise since the beginning of time. He tells us that his word will not return void, but it will accomplish its purposes in the hearts and minds of his people. I'll close this morning by simply rereading the passage we've been working through. What has Paul done? Well, he prays for the Colossians. His prayer is the same prayer that Jesus prays for you today if you've trusted in him. 
Do you know that forgiveness of Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in him alone for your salvation? If so, then he promises to draw you to himself. He promises to change your mind, to change your heart, and to change your life as you follow him. Once you know Jesus, you'll start to bear fruit. You'll increase in your knowledge of God. You'll more and more live by his power, and you'll live a life of joyful thanks come what may. Because you know that you're safe and secure in the kingdom of the Son of God. Here's what Paul wrote to the Colossian church and to all Christians today. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me?